Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. My name is John McAdam. I'm the host. This is a classic pro wrestling show where we generally deal with 70s, 80s, and 90s wrestling. Uh, We're doing 1983 in the WWF Today Part 2. I always tell you, if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed we'll give you a wicked good and raw bone podcast. You want to join our Facebook group because you want to be part of the conversation. We took questions from the group about this show, so you want to get in on that. And there's a lot of cool results and conversation going on there anyway. So I encourage you, especially those who have recently just found the Six Wrestling Podcast, to join the group. You will be a welcome addition. If you want to follow me on Twitter, just put in the words John McAdam in the search engine and follow the guy who has the Stick to Wrestling logo as his avatar. I don't always stick to wrestling on Twitter, but I do for the most part. Besides, you love my baseball stuff. I know you do. Oh, one more thing. If you would like to donate to Stick to Wrestling, it is an ad-free completely free show uh you can paypal me at pro wrestling archives at gmail.com uh no contribution is too small and certainly no contribution is too big i think if you are a billionaire 10 million should be nothing to you for all this great entertainment and i want to bring on my occasional uh co-host mr steve generelli steve we left off last week i, I want to ask you coming in what are your gripes? Do you have any gripes? <laughs> no, I have no gripes at all. Uh, my life is uh, just <laughs> fine. And uh, But I want to thank John Boucher, our special guest, for joining us this week. Yeah, John, thanks for coming back. We're staying here. Thanks for yes for for, for having me, thanks for having me back or letting me stay however however you want to look at it I'm thankful and I have no gripes with, uh, <laughs> with, with about anything that's happening at this very moment ah uh, my gripeless <laughs> pair of people I'm talking to today uh, so yeah we're gonna keep going with uh, the WWF winter of 1983 uh, another reason to join the group Jake Hammer threw out an interesting observation that Pat Patterson seems to be or it, at least in theory grabbing some more power because we're seeing a lot of guys who were connected to Pat Patterson in the San Francisco promotion in the WWF. We've got Rocky Johnson. We've got Mr. Fuji. We've got uh, Magnificent Morocco. Uh, one guy we haven't talked about yet, Ed Wiskowski, was there. Buddy Rose. I mean, there, uh, any thoughts on that, uh, Steve? Yeah, actually, and not to steal Jake's thunder, but I think that was my my point of view or my question I mentioned. Oh, but, no. <laughs> all right. Jake's a great guy anyhow. But, uh, now he's got a great. Okay. Yeah, I know. I have a Gripe, darn, darn it. But uh, yeah, actually, yeah, all those guys had come from the Roy Shire system, uh, or Ray Shire's or Roy Shire's system of wrestling. And um, I actually went to one of Barry Rose's great uh, wrestling uh, uh, shows here in Lutz, Florida, a suburb of Tampa. And uh, Pat Patterson happened to be there. And, you know, I, I didn't want to bother the poor guy. He was sitting there. Pat was sitting in this polo uh, and Jerry Briscoe was on the other side of the room. And the room was kind of cold. And Pat, Pat Patterson just sitting there all, like all by himself. He seemed like, Jesus Christ, it's cold. <laughs> 
<laughs> like only Pat Patterson can say. So, so I went up to him and I said, you know, Pat uh, of uh, of Roy Shires, Eddie Graham, uh, Bill Watts, uh, Vince. Uh, who who is who is the the best Booker out of that group? And he just looks at me with that look on his face and just says, Vince. <laughs> You know, so he knows he's writing the checks, you know. But but I thought it was funny that uh, all the uh, all those guys had worked uh, for Shires, and and they all happened to be coming in right at the time that you know I think Patterson was getting to be more influential. Uh, I know Monsoon was doing some of the booking and stuff, but and this is before George Scott came in, so I, I think Patterson was probably involved in the booking with the uh, Vince, uh, the elder Vince, and young Vince, and with Monsoon as well. You know, and, and uh, another San Francisco connection I forgot about was the Samoans. Yeah. Um, I didn't include that in the group. I mean, WWS getting overrun by these guys. John, I don't know if you ever heard this story. The Pat Patterson uh, says he got the Samoans into pro wrestling. They, he said they used to be two fans who would come to the Cow Palace in San Francisco. And if Peter Maivia or someone they liked was getting knocked around by the heels, these two would rush the ring and security would try to stop them. And they would just, you know, often seek it would just toss these guys out of the way, out of their way, like <laughs> nothing. And they would storm the ring. And Pat Patterson just said, screw it. Let's train them to be wrestlers and get them out of our hair. Yeah. If you can't beat them, have them, have them join us. I guess. Yeah. It, it is very interesting. Like with, with wrestling, you know, we don't really know who was a lot of the time who was booking where at what point. And it's sort of it's not like looking at the NWA board of directors for a certain year. You can't say like, oh, Crockett was president here. Eddie Graham was president. You don't really know. So it's sort of you have to figure out, OK, let's watch, see who's coming in and who's leaving and and, and sort of like figure out who was who was booking where at certain points. It's sort of interesting to try to decipher that. And uh and this is sort of near the tail end of that, sort of, where you wouldn't have to think about that very much <laughs> as the territory sort of, uh, you know, sort of sort of dying off one by one here. Yeah. I mean, that was, you know, it was funny, the wrecking ball that was put th- through pro wrestling in the 1980s. And no, really, only Vince McMahon Jr. was left standing. Yeah, I recently heard uh, George Shire on a, a different podcast talking about, you know, wrestling and how all the changes happened in the mid eighties. And, and he, I really respect his opinion and he's a very intelligent guy, but he was just, he's blaming everything on Vince. But if you look at the NWA, as we get into the late seventies, into the early eighties, big chunks of it are really just falling apart on, on its own. I mean, Los Angeles, the second biggest market in the country, it went belly up and Vince bought them out. Detroit went belly up. I mean, you had, these markets that went belly up well before Vince was doing anything. That was something that always fascinated me. And I've I've mentioned this on the show before that, you know, you had Los Angeles with no major league pro wrestling. It's the second biggest city in the United States. It's a huge city. You had Phoenix with no major league pro wrestling and then Vince was going to go out and fill that void. But I mean, you know, and I'd like to have George on sometime, but if you're, if you're kind of new to this podcast, go back and listen to episode. I think it's either episode, it's episode number four. It's called the territories are dead and they're never coming back. <laughs> and it kind of gets into, you know, 
it was inevitable that what happened happened. If Vince McMahon had never existed, there would have been either just one national major league pro wrestling promotion or pro wrestling would have gone the way of roller derby. So if you're new to this, I invite you to listen to that podcast we recorded over uh, almost five years ago. Anyway, Boston Garden, WWF returns to the Garden February 5th, 1983. They drew another big house, almost 15,000. I actually made it this time. The main event was Bob Backlund going to a double DQ with Don Morocco. I remember that being a good match. The Strongbows over the Samoans, which I, I by this point, I don't mean to beat this into the ground. I never wanted to see that match again, <laughs> but I had to. And we finally got our big Jimmy Snooker versus Ray Stevens match. And Rocky Johnson defeats superstar Billy Graham in a match that was noticeably bad and and went last less than two minutes. But uh, anyway, that's my wow. <laughs> yeah, a, a minute and 50 seconds, John. I saw that and I was like, this has to be a typo. That has to be. They have to mean 11 minutes and 50 seconds. But no, actually a minute and 50 seconds. Wow. Which. No, they. I remember it. Be, I remember it being a bad minute and fifty seconds. I was also, you know, I, I saw both guys as being stars. You know, do, superstar Billy Graham was WWF champion, and Rocky Johnson. I always saw as a guy who was a a legitimate threat to the NWA championship, and it was a little bit disappointing. But anyway. Now, we talked about this a little bit last week. Big John Studd is having a body slam challenge. And, you know, the money's going up every week. And I wish I had the audio for this, but I do not. Gorilla Monsoon, the week before he was supposed to make the body slam challenge, comes out and says, I'm in the best shape of my life. I've been playing a lot of racquetball, and this makes me feel like I can body slam Big John Stud. Now, I think we're all around the same age, me, Steve, and John Boucher. I mean, racquetball, it's great if you are as old as Gorilla Monsoon was at this point. You wanted to keep in shape. Um, but, I mean, Steve, yeah, I wouldn't exactly use racquetball as a means to prepare to pick up Big John Stud and slam. I, I think Monsoon just had, like, uh, an audio slip, and he meant to say handball. <laughs> He might have said handball. I might not be remembering correctly. Well, he, he, uh, well anyhow, I mean, this was the All Asiatic Champion, Gorilla Monsoon. Uh, obviously, he should uh, be considered a number one challenger to be able to slam Big John Stud. I mean, he he was clearly, you know, he never announced his retirement nationally, but obviously, you know, he was the retired legend. And I mean. John, I don't know if you've seen it. I have seen it. His attempt to slam body slam Big John Stud did not go well, and oh, Gorilla no. wound up taking a few kicks afterward. Yeah, I think what he's wearing it almost looks like a like a pirate jersey or something <laughs> that he comes out wearing. It's like it's like number seventeen on the back. Like what's he like a Lee Lacey fan? Like what is happening? <laughs> I remember Monsoon, like kind of like a little dick at stud too, like steps over the top rope. You know, I was like, oh, that's interesting. But this is like, it's a, this is an interesting little little segment because it's the first time I remember that John Stud and Blassie were sort of like seemed nervous and like stalling for time, and in, in one of these, so it was the first real challenge for Stud, and, and and he keeps pushing Monsoon away, trying to you know get him get, get, get holding off, and eventually I think Monsoon 
shoves Stud back into the corner, and he bounces off the turnbuckles. Monsoon sort of crotches him, gets him up, and then Stud grabs the ropes and ends yeah. up flattening Monsoon and puts the puts the boot to him till uh, Pedro and Tony Guerrilla, I think, make the save. Yeah, I, I, you know, and it it showed you two things. Number one, that you know, John Studd wasn't a friendly giant doing this out of the goodness of his heart. He is a bad person, and he will take cheap shots at guys trying to do his challenge. Quick vote: Do you guys want me to go on a Lee Lacey rant, or would you like me to hear what Steve has to say about the body slam challenge with Gorilla Monsoon? I'd rather, I'd rather hear about oh, the Lee Lacey. It's obvious what they want to hear, Steve, and it's not me. <laughs> <laughs> can, we, can, we, can we have both? <laughs> Let's go with Lee Lacey first, please. Let's go with Lee Lacey first. I'll, I'll, I'll be really fast. Lee Lacey was the second baseman for the Pirates who couldn't hit that turned into this left fielder for the Orioles who could hit. I wonder what happened there. Yeah, I, yeah, hmm. I, I, I do remember that. I remember Lee Lacey was like in a platoon with, uh, gosh, who was he platoon with on the uh, – on the pirates, but yeah, Lowenstein. I oh, think. He, oh, oh, with the oh, Orioles. Yeah, yeah, be, yeah. But Lee Lacey, I remember. Uh, I remember one Yankees game I went to uh, on a Sunday at the at the stadium, and I was de- devastated because Lee Lacey probably hit for the cycle or had a couple of triples, and the Yankees lost handily there. But uh, getting back to Monsoon. Do you, everyone, do you see how easy it is for this podcast to go completely off the track? <laughs> go ahead, Steve. That's right. It's my fault. Blame it on the No problem at all. No problem. Well, the thing with Monsoon was, I mean, he uh, he just, he always had to like, kind, of, kind of put himself over in these angles. I mean, even the one where Vader squashes him, you know, like 15 years after this, I mean, he always has to get his chops in and all this. <laughs> But uh, yeah, I mean, I guess once once Stud got the better of him, uh, seeing Stud emerge victorious over uh, you know retired legend Gorilla Monsoon, it, it did help give uh, Stud a little bit of a rub. You know, we have to say that. Oh, definitely. And he was he was really the right guy to do that with because you're not losing anything. You know, you know, you're not going to have Big John Stud uh, versus Gorilla Monsoon as a feud, so I, it made a lot of sense. But Anyway, my favorite Lacey's, number two, Lee Lacey, number one, Lacey Underall from that movie from 1980 with Rodney Dangerfield. What was it? Caddyshack? Caddyshack. Thank classic. you. I think that movie was old. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> you say classic the same time I say no, overrated. I, saw, I, I remember seeing it. the theater. I just was blown away. <laughs> <laughs> I loved Rodney Dangerfield. I saw it in the theater, but like, you know, the movie I thought was a little bit, has become a little bit overrated. Iron Mike Sharp makes his debut with Captain Lou Albano as his manager. Now, the average person, when you bring up Big John Studd's name, you know, remembers him as the, the TV enhancement guy in like 85, 86, usually used losing as part of a tag team with the other guy doing the pin. But by that point, Big John Studd was no longer winning on TV. In 1983, when they brought him in with Albano, I saw nothing wrong with him I, I as a challenger to Bob Backlund. Like, I totally bought this guy as a a one-and-done versus Backlund, the same way Killer Khan and Buddy Rose were. Uh, John Boucher, let's get your thoughts on early Iron Mike Sharp when he first gets to the WWF. Yeah, when he first came in. I remember he was paired with Albano. He had just come off the decent runs of the Georgia Mid-South. 
and he was, you know, as what they, you know, a, a pushed entity, as as they say, uh, getting, you know, getting getting all the wins on TV with the the the, the loaded uh, forearm protector guy there. Yeah, absolutely. I, I remember one of uh, one of my first half dozen cards that I went to. Actually, he was set to challenge Bob Backlund for the WWF title at the Westchester County Center, and this was on December twenty eighth of nineteen eighty three. Ah. But much to my surprise and the surprise and shock of mostly everyone there, Backlund was no longer <laughs> the champion. And one of this, this, this is another Iron Mike Sharp tidbit. I, I, I've always wondered about this one, too. There's, and I've never seen tape of this. don't know if it exists. don't even know if it was recorded. But apparently there was, a, I think it was October of 83, MSG Iron Mike Sharp uh, wrestling Don Morocco in a rare sort of heel versus heel match. I've always wanted to see that match. I don't know if it ever exists or ever was, was recorded or will be released or whatever, but I've always been fascinated by that match or, or what, what was going on to have that match get booked at all. I mean, I, I don't know the backstory. Nothing happened on TV or anything like that. And they were, they were both managed by captain Lou Albano. Steve, do you have any light to shed on that? It just seems like the um, the rug was pulled out under Iron Mike Sharp. I mean, it's it's uh, he was getting a decent push, kind of like the um, Rocky Mountain Thunder there from a couple of years prior. Uh, but I mean, Sharp was getting a real push. Uh, they just stopped doing it. I wonder how much his uh, OCD compulsions uh, played a role in this. If they got tired of him, you know, hey, the building's been sh- closed down for three hours. Get out of the shower, Mike. <laughs> you know, if that's a part of it. Or, but I did hear a funny story on one of those uh, Dick Slater shoot interviews where he knew full well about Iron Mike Sharp's uh, cleanliness compulsions. And I guess when they had their big match at the big event in in Toronto in '86, uh, right before they go to lock up with each other. Uh, Slater blew his nose and his hands <laughs> goes to lock up with him. <laughs> I guess for I guess for, my, for Mike Sharp that was the worst thing that could have ever happened. But uh, but I think the office really liked him because I mean they they had him back in the promotion uh, perpetually till like the early nineties. I mean they kept working him, yeah. but they just never really wanted to give him a big push. I know he teamed with Hogan in Japan in eighty three eighty four I believe, uh, but they just didn't want to give him a legitimate push. I, I don't know what happened. I, I know he got a, a title match against Bob Backlund in Philadelphia. So, yeah, Iron Mike Sharp headlines the spectrum, but no Boston Garden, no Madison Square Garden. And and like I said, I mean, John, he was a, a big guy. He had Albano. He had the arm brace. I mean, I would have had no problem in 1983, you know, with them advertising Bob Backlund defending against Iron Mike Sharp in Boston. Especially on like a, a very the the, the 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 roster here was in need of, of of some good heels and Sharp had like great like heel heat on TV with the wimp thing <laughs> people with the wimp you know it was great it was great 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 stuff like it was you know it seemed like he was headed headed for more than than he got. Yeah, and I again, I, I Steve might have brought up a good point that you know maybe someone just got turned off by his OCD, but then again, they were happy to bring him back in 1984 and then keep him for a long time. All right, we talked about this a little bit last week. Uh, Big John Stud, the Body Slam Challenge. This week on TV, he is scheduled to have Chief J Strongbow Body Slam Big John Stud. But let's hear what actually happened. 
Now, ladies and gentlemen, the Body Slam Challenge this week is up. The money is up to $10,000. Here, manager Fred Blassie is holding the money. $10,000. And the challenger, ladies and gentlemen, the challenger this week, here he comes now. It is Chief. Chief. No, 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 no. No, it's not. No, it's not. Ladies and gentlemen, it is. It is. I, the challenger this week is. He'll be. There he is. Andre the Giant. Oh, I can't believe it. Did you see the look on Stud's face? The. Joe McHugh not being particularly good at, at at keeping surprises or at least giving out the surprise. To me, you have to have either Fred Blassie, John Studd, or both. Like, just be at McHugh saying, what are you doing? You were in on this? You wouldn't tell me? And then have Andre, you know, have McHugh run for his life and have Andre come out. And I'll tell you what, guys, I, I, I don't know when the last time either of you saw this angle was uh, John, I'm going to let you get guess first, but Andre, the giant comes out to accept big John studs, body slam challenge. John, let's say you've never seen this before. What do you think would happen? I would think that Andre is about to get him up. And uh, yeah, Blassie comes from behind with the cane and hits Andre. That's what I was thinking was going to happen. Steve, what 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 would you think would would be happening next? Well, as a, as a young fan back then, and a very naive young fan, I'm sure. I'm, oh, wow. Yes, I I would have thought Andre would have slammed him because uh, a lot of other people, you know, came close to it. And here's Andre. Uh, there's no doubt that Andre's going to slam him. I mean, to me, this was and it, it, it's hokey fun pro wrestling that you absolutely know, especially given you know the monsoon situation, what was going to happen. And believe it or not, John Boucher guessed it that Andre got it, got him up, and oh no, Fred Blassie with the cane blast Andre the Giant, and now we have a feud ready to go that the WWF audience, the, you know, that's the audience that they are. They, they like great big guys pretending to fight. And you've got this made to order feud that I think, you know, no one's going to tell you that it was great inside the ring. It wasn't, but I mean, it, it's something the the fans wanted to see. John, what are your thoughts on, on the whole two <sighs> giants going at it feud angle? Well, first, first of all, my booking of this angle where Blassie hit Andre with the cane actually makes more sense than what actually happened because what Blassie actually did, Blassie came up with his pink and lavender outfit instead of hitting <laughs> Andre with the cane, wrapped his arms around big John stud <laughs> to prevent Andre from lifting him up, which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> like he's got this cane right here. <laughs> but instead, I'm going to wrap my arms around my charge. Big John said, "Looks like you need a hug, John." Yeah, I I liked this feud initially. I just thought it went on way, 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 way too long. You mean three um, years is too long? <laughs> three years is long, and I think yeah, I, way, way too long. And I think Big John Stud really suffered at this point from their 
not being a lot of other places for him to to go away to and come back and sort of like hit the reset on this or refresh it because it was just after you know after like you said like we talked about last week after backland and after yeah after andre then what's left for stud you know and that's that's sort of i think the the hole he fell in here well, you know what? Uh, counterpoint is that, okay, 1984 now, the WWF is starting to expand into new markets, markets that had not seen uh, Andre the Giant versus Big John Stud before. I mean, I remember being taken aback that this thing was still going on in, in literally into 1986. And, yeah. you know, but I mean, not everyone had been exposed to the feud like the people in the Northeast had, you know, the three of us. I mean, you know, at this point, I mean, Steve, what did you think of, of this feud? You know, <laughs> when John was describing what had happened with Blassie, it was kind of funny. One thing he didn't mention was when uh, when Andre uh, realized that Blassie had had blocked the attempt, the slam attempt. Um, I think Andre went to slap Blassie, and uh, Blassie did that move like, "Hey, feet, do your stuff." <laughs> he tried to get his feet moving, you know, but he couldn't really run, so uh, he just kind of staggered and got knocked down. I guess. But but one thing about this feud, uh, one, one thing that was kind of interesting, while these guys are having this unending 100-year feud of theirs, I know in January, uh, when expansion really started to begin hev- heavily, uh, they had this uh, big battle royal in St. Louis, which I'm sure you guys remember, with like tons of stars in it. And Stud actually um, won it over both Andre and Hogan. And while Hogan didn't really have a major program that first year as champion, oftentimes he was pitted against Stud in a, in a you know, main event program throughout the country. So that was really, I think, kind of based off of that that battle royal in January of '84, and and the and the Hogan uh, not the Hogan but the Andre Stud feud just was always there on the back burner, always ready to be brought back to main events. Yeah, I mean, you could again, you know, you. You're breaking into a new market, whether it be Atlanta, Miami, Dallas, whatever, and you could have Hulk Hogan against this guy who's even bigger than Hulk Hogan. So if if that's the audience you're targeting, it, it totally makes sense. All right, now let's talk about the February 18th Madison Square Garden show. Once again, the uh, kind of the heart of the old WWF. Uh, which, you know, I, I, I mean, those days would be gone very quickly. Five years later, Madison Square Garden just wasn't as big a deal as it once was, thanks to pay-per-view mostly. But let's hear from Mr. Fuji talking about his match at Madison Square Garden February 18th, again, for review purposes only. Did he have you worried at any time during that match? Never, never, Mr. Fuji is fearful of opponent. Yes. You see, Mr. Fuji, yes. as mine of million, million fans, yes. me, yes. Japanese, that is yes. superior. But he, so, but, but he was throwing you around like a sack of Japanese uh, potatoes uh, in the beginning. Uh, no, nigga, not yeah, in this yeah. is. I use Japanese called psychology. Yes. And Japanese, very smart. Japanese economy, number one. Yes. America. Down! Well, oh, Japanese, up again! He has defeated you in the past. Yeah. He can defeat you again, can he? Never, never happened. Yeah. Never. Oh, okay. What are you thinking? Yes. Well, Mr. Fuji never thinking. Sayonara! Well, <laughs> all right, you won this time. Congratulations. <laughs> okay. All right, here's where the show starts. Uh, Jose Estrada 
pins Kurt Henning, which is kind of mind-blowing. Johnny Rods defeats Baron Mikkel Cicluna, two longtime WWF heels. Mr. Fuji on this night defeats uh, Tony Gurria. Fuji had been thrown around, as Cal Rudman said, like a sack of Japanese potatoes. I'm not sure what that means, Steve. Well, Cal Rudman, uh, I think, uh, in his own way, has kind of become the uh, who's the guy on the who's the guy on the uh, Larry Nelson on the AWA. How uh, Larry Nelson has kind of become a cult favorite, I think, because of the 605 Super Podcast. I think uh, um, Cal Rudman, for the same reason, has kind of become a cult favorite. But when you look back on it now, um, I think Lord Alfred Hayes really supplanted uh, Cal Rudman as the kind of the backstage interviewer uh, starting in about uh, five or six months or actually I think I think Lord Al was there when the Backlund lost the title so right around that time uh, Alfred took over for Rudman but but these interviews are really uh, kind of fun to watch in retrospect all these years later I have you I- Ladies and gentlemen, you are like not even 10 minutes about away from Cal Rudman turning into Larry Nelson, like an even crazier version of Larry Nelson. You don't have very much longer to wait. John, uh, let me. Any thoughts on either Cal Rudman, Mr. Fuji? I mean, I, you know, Mr. Fuji always got a really bad rap. In the Observer, in the Wrestling Underground, but I, I, Mr. Fuji was a heat magnet in the WWF. I mean, he's, in my opinion, he's been here a little bit too long by now, but he's still very much a sinister heel. He really was, and if you go back and you watch like any any of those old like MSG cards, or even more so like the Philly Spectrum cards with him, like the him and Saito from a few months before this. And on paper, like a, a Fuji Saito against a Jewel and Jay Strongbow sounds like a snooze fest. Watch it with watch it with the Spectrum crowd in 1981-82, and it's the most exciting wrestling you'll have watched in at least a month. The crowd is super into it. Um, he served a purpose, and he did that really, really well. Cal Rudman, I, I'm a huge fan of Cal Rudman. I love... Speaking of the Spectrum stuff, I love watching, listening to Cal Rudman and, and, and Dick Graham just for all their their beautiful ineptitude at the <laughs> announce desk. It's like it's like you pluck some guys off like the set of like, you know, the, like the 70s, like the, the like the match game or something and put them uh, in, at a wrestling show. It's just it's just great. You know, I, I, I love those two. I think um, they pull them out of telltales, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> Bert Convy's tattletales. Like you guys, yeah. I, I, you know, I look at them. I'm like, okay, they're not very good, but they're so enthusiastic to me that that you can't help but like Cal, Cal Rubman and Dick Graham. I mean, they're they're doing the announcing, and it's like they have this smile on their faces that they need surgery to pull off. There's there's nowhere else they they'd rather be, but. Moving on with this show, Big John Studd defeats Jules Strongbow. I'll tell you what, let's hear what Big John Studd had to say after that match. And this huge giant of a man. John Studd, the obvious question. He tried to slam you. What happened? Nothing. He didn't have the power and strength. I'm six foot ten, 364 pounds. I said it before and I'll say it again. I'm too big to be slammed. I can't be pinned. My name is John Studd, and I've got $10,000 off myself and my great manager, Freddie Blassie, to give all these punk wrestlers 
the incentive and the motivation to step in the ring and try to All battle right, me. John, John, one question. Uh, he, he was hitting you like this. He was smacking you back with it. Uh, why did you fall back? Was he hurting you? I refuse to answer All that right. question. Okay, now back to Vince at ringside. All right. Once again, for review purposes only, Cal, Rud- Cal Rudman isn't even beginning to entertain you at this point. Um, let me see. Ray Stevens defeats Chief J. Strongbow. Uh, I'll, I'll give this one to you, John. If, if it's 1983, Ray Stevens is wrestling, and he's the least washed-up guy in the match, we may have a problem. Oof, yeah. This is, uh, yeah. Uh, oof. This, again, it, it, and Strongbow is another guy like in, in you know, Jewel Strongbow and Jay Strongbow in as singles doesn't make a lot of sense. Of you know, with, last week we talked about you know the the Samoans in singles against Backlund as challengers. Just having Jules and or Jay Strongbow in singles matches at this point, uh, especially Jay Strongbow against Ray Stevens, is just doesn't doesn't make a lot of sense. No, I mean, I think it makes sense in that you can feed the Strongbows as adversaries or opponents for guys that need wins. I think it makes sense from there. Plus, they're on their way out. But at the same Mm -hmm. time, it it takes everything away from them being, I mean, they're still the tag team champions somehow at this point. And you're kind of putting them in a a negative light. Any, Any thoughts on that, Steve? I, I saw that match. I saw Stevens against Strongbow uh, while preparing for the show here. And, you know, I just, all, all that went through my mind was, I mean, uh, the Joe Scarpa from Florida in the 60s or maybe 1970. And, of course, Stevens was, you know, huge in the 60s in the San Francisco area. I mean, seeing those two guys in their prime go against each other must have been like, would have been maybe match of the year candidate potentially. But seeing them in this time frame with Strombo with his dyed hair and his bald spot and a big gut and Stevens looking uh, worse, the worst for wear, it was just kind of sad. It really was. Yeah. Uh, I mean, just, you know, and I've mentioned this on the show before. I mean, the end of Chief J. Strongbow's career, I think, should have gone out with a bang. He absolutely should have had a a retirement match at Madison Square Garden or something like that. I mean, not not even for him as much as for the fans of, of Strongbow, but they didn't. He just kept sliding further and further down the car, doing jobs on TV, and it was not fun to watch. The main event, Madison Square Garden, February 18th, 1983. The rematch between the magnificent Morocco and Bob Backlund. Uh, it goes to a double disqualification but what's here what uh, magnificent morocco had to say before the match we have here ladies and gentlemen is perhaps the uh, most confident number one contender in world wrestling federation history magnificent morocco any comments before tonight's matchup so many times children on the street growing up basketball players boxing wrestlers every field of sports knows the epitome the top you can get is to be in Madison Square Garden in the middle of the ring in front of 25,000 people so many times I've been there so many times I've heard the hatred so many times I've heard the screams I'm so used to it I feel at home 
I feel comfortable right in the middle of a hurricane. Thank you very much, Mr. Morocco, and the best of luck to you tonight. Don Morocco. Okay, we believe in equal time here at the Stick to Wrestling Podcast. Let's hear Bob Backlund's pre-match comments before the rematch with the Magnificent Morocco, once again for educational and review purposes. World Wrestling Federation champion Bob Backlund preparing for his matchup with the Magnificent Morocco. You've met many a great opponent in the past, but perhaps none has proven himself any more worthy than Mr. Morocco. Yeah, I mean, he's a tough, tough man. I know I'm going to have to give it all I can tonight, and there's a lot built up between us, a lot of hard feeling. But, uh, you know, a lot of people say he's going to beat me. A lot of people say he's got my number. But I'm not going to let up now. The people in New York City all over the world have always been right behind me, and they're important to me. Uh, And uh, by golly, one way or another, uh, whether he beats me or not, I'm going to go in there and fight to the last end. Very best of luck to you tonight. Bye-bye. Thank you. All right, those are the pre-match interviews. Of course, Bob Backlund and Magnificent Morocco go to a double disqualification. And ladies and gentlemen, we have a post-match interview by Cal Rudman. And I'm you know, for review purposes only, take a deep breath and get ready for this one. Yeah. How can you feel? Yeah. I feel good. I knew me and the captain all the time. Yeah. All the time. <laughs> we had the strategy. Yeah. We knew he couldn't handle himself. Yeah. We knew Back was going to get mad. Yeah. He can't go. See, when it gets really rough, yeah. when you got a dude as big and bad as me, yeah. Bobby Backer, you can do step tests all night long. You can do workouts all night long. You can do whatever you want to do all night long. But you ain't, huh? Captain. All right, Captain. That was for you, brother. We had him. We knew on the films. We knew what it was like. <laughs> the captain's my man. What are you going to say, brother? What are you going to say, brother? They got all the big money coming down. Oh, my goodness. Hey, what's going on? Call security. Call security. Call security. Call security. Get out there. Put him off. Put him off. Call security. Call security. Wait, security. Wait a minute. We'll be back, ladies and gentlemen, with more pro wrestling, hopefully in the ring. Well, obviously what happened, Morocco was doing his post-match interview in the dressing room, like right where you enter the dressing room. And as he was talking, you could kind of tell that he's kind of saying to himself, okay, when is Bob Backlund going to attack me from behind? And Backlund did attack him from behind. And Larry Nelson watched that. and He said, man, that Cal Ripken dude needs to calm down. It pains me. It pains me that I have to wait 12 days for that to, between now and that coming out because that was that was something else. Uh, John, give us your thoughts on this whole crazy Morocco Backland Rudman thing. Oh, I I I I I'm a big fan of them. I mean, they didn't do this very often uh, with these little altercations there in the little in the little hallway there, entrance way to the ring, to the locker room there. I remember they did one, oh, maybe like a year and a half later with the Iron Sheik and the Sergeant Slaughter that had a lot of swearing too. I yes. thought that was like very cool. I was like, oh my God, there's like, they're effing each other up and down. It was great. Uh, a lot of swearing, for great. 
I love this too. You see all everybody coming to break it up. You see Kurt Henning is there, I think. And I think you get a little glimpse of uh, Vince That's Sr. Right. In the uh, very, very quick Vince uh, Sr. setting. So that was kind of cool. Um, I love this stuff. I love the, 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 one of the many lost arts of wrestling is a really good pull apart brawl. I love a good pull apart brawl. And this is especially in the dressing room where it looks real. And you've got the hysterical Cal Rudman, which makes this thing even better. Yeah, I, I love a good pull apart brawl. I love Cal Rudman. So I, I love this segment. And Cal actually gets involved. He's holding a microphone yeah. with one hand, screaming, call security. And he is also with the other hand attempting to hold back Bob Backlund. Like, you know, th- thank, thank you for your effort, Cal. Um, I mean, Steve, <laughs> is, is there anything you would like to add to this? Well, it, it was, it was unbelievably exciting and good. I mean, it happened right at the gorilla position, right behind the curtain, so to speak. And, um, this, like John just said, this would rarely be used. I mean, we see it on today's wrestling all the time now, backstage <laughs> vignettes, backstage interviews, uh, craziness backstage. But in, th- in this time frame, not so much. I, I do recall, uh, you know, years later, I think around 86, when the big Hogan-Kamala feud, they had a huge pull apart between Hogan and Kamala backstage with King Curtis, the wizard, involved. And that was a very effective one, too. Even Vince got involved in that one. But this was really effective, really uh, exciting, and it really added another depth, another level to this uh, uh, big war between Morocco and Backlund. You really believe that these guys hated each other and they were fighting over the most important thing in all of sports, the WWF championship. That's actually a really good a really good point that was just made. All right, uh, Rocky Johnson defeats superstar Billy Graham by count out at 346 this series was an absolute dud and then before the Samoan you see this is why I complain about the way the WWF handled the tag team champion I mean they're being really uh, just sloppy at this point the match that we're having is Andre the Giant and Jimmy Snuka defeating the wild Samoans at 1251 the Samoans haven't even won the championships yet and you're having them do jobs yes it's to Andre and Snuka but once again for review purposes only let's hear the the pre-match comments from both Andre the Giant and Jimmy Snuka Tonight in Madison Square Garden are calling this one of the most phenomenal tag team combinations of all time. To my right, Superfly Jimmy Snuka teaming up with the one and the only Andre the Giant. The only undefeated superstar in professional wrestling history teaming up with Superfly Snuka. A comment, please, Jimmy, on your tag team partner. Well, brother, there's only one thing that I'd just like to mention. That how could you have any doubt? With a big man like this, the greatest there is today. Now against what is it, Sifra and Afra? You know that these two gentlemen are from the Samoan Islands. Now from back in the Samoan Islands, brother, them people back there are definitely are something else because they are the wildness as they look. But Sifra and Afra, just remember one thing, brother. Look what I got next to me, my man. Andre, comment, please. Tonight, there will be the night of history at wrestling. We're going to do something just like those two someone never see ever in their life before. Thank you very much, and the best of luck to Andre the Giant and Superfly Snooker. 
Again, I know it's for, you know, Andre the Giant, one of the biggest superstars in the business. And you could say the same thing about Jimmy Snuka. But, I mean, Steve, the Samoans doing jobs before he even put the championships on them is booking I don't agree with. I, I agree with you, John. I mean, it, it doesn't make any sense. I haven't even won yet. What stood out to me about this match was just the interview that you just played. You know, Vince is standing there with this look on his face. When Snook is talking, Vince is looking at him like, uh, I wonder what little bird is spinning around in this guy's head. And when Andre's talking, Vince is looking at him like, my God, you're going to make me tons of money in the years to come. You know, the future <laughs> owner of the company, but, uh, you know, you could just see the admiration he had for Andre there. But, uh, yeah, the match was your typical, hey, it's the end of the card, let's go home match, nothing special about it, and kind of disappointing. I, I did, and you know what they, I mean, we had so many incarnations of Andre and Snuka versus the Samoans uh, moving throughout 1983, but we'll, we'll get into that later. Uh, I mean, John, do you have any comments on, you know, the Andre Snuka Samoans match? Yeah, I mean, the only, again, doesn't make, doesn't make any sense as to, from a booking perspective, why, uh, if you're going to team Andre and Snuka together, why against the Samoans? You can have them, you know, have them against anybody else, really any other two heels on your roster, and it would make sense. But not not the Samoans doesn't make sense because they're for all the reasons you just said. I get this did I did give us I believe this gave us the iconic photograph that they would use on a a, a program a few months later of Snuka doing the. Uh, Super five splash off of Andre's shoulder. So there's that. I guess that's the one, the one good takeaway from this match. Yeah, that is true. They did do that spot at Madison Square Garden and is where they got that shot that they used on top, on the cover of the programs with Jimmy Snuka standing on Andre's shoulders, ready to splash onto one of the Samoans, which doesn't seem like the safest thing in the world to do, but that Jimmy was in unsafe stuff, I guess. And uh, yeah, they, they kind of did that spot. Uh, going around the horn, I remember they did it in Boston, and it got a really nice pop. Rest of the card, Eddie Gilbert pins Charlie Fulton. Salvatore Belomo pins Sweet Hansen. So I guess Sweet Hansen's a heel again <laughs> after being a baby superstar Billy Graham. And they close out with Pedro Morales pinning Buddy Rose while Buddy is uh, Buddy is not challenging for the Intercontinental Championship. So we're kind of saying uh, goodbye to Pedro Morales, John. Huh. Yeah, that uh, yeah, he, he. This was is this his last MSG card here? I'm not sure if they didn't bring him back. He hung around until like the end of the spring, but it's like we were talking about a little bit, you know, last week with the former champion. You know, it was like he had nowhere to go in the WWF. It felt like. Yeah, that sort of it sort of it does sort of feel that way. Yeah, I don't I don't know what else to say about Pedro. This is uh this is sort of his last his last hurrah here. It's it's again. He's a guy too. I would have liked to. You mentioned having wishing Strongbow got a, a nice send off. I sort of feel that same way about about, about Pedro. Uh, even if he didn't have it here, even if we had it in you know eighty five or something, you know that would have been nice. 
Yeah, a nice send-off for him at Madison Square Garden, which, you know, I mean, I I get that's not what the wrestling business is about, but I mean, it's not like people are going to, it's not like it's going to keep people home. But anyway, all right, I thought I found something here. I When doing the research for the show, I noticed that the WWF was debuting in Akron, Ohio on February 23rd, and I was like, wait a minute, WCW or World Championship Wrestling slash Georgia Championship Wrestling is promoting in Akron. Maybe Vince really did invade one of Ole cities first, but no, uh, WCW would p- start promoting in Akron in March. But Steve, I mean, I mean, it sets up what we knew was coming all along. We've got the two major national promotions; they're going to be fighting it out in Akron, Ohio. Yeah, it, it's just the beginning of uh, you know, the long battle that would happen until. Uh, 87, uh, well, even beyond 87, as far as uh, when when WCW uh, uh, bought out uh, the Crockett's and became Ted Turner's WCW against Vince's company. But this is like the very early days. Uh, I mean, at this point, the WWF is still a member of the NWA. Uh, that wouldn't last much longer. But, uh, you know, it, it's just that Vince wants to be number one. Uh, Oli and that company probably are thinking about the same thing for their company. And it's just a, a matter of who's going to get there first. And I think, you know, history will look back on it as saying Vince had more resources, had uh, maybe a larger talent, a larger TV network. And that's why he eventually won this war. I think by the time this all broke out, uh, the WWF actually had a better product. I mean, you know, we'll, we'll talk about it at some point, but Georgia Championship Wrestling, February 1983, it was still a good promotion, but it wasn't going to be for much longer. I mean, John, any thoughts on, I mean, really, it sounds strange, but Akron, Ohio may have been the city where the first real shot was, was fired in the wrestling yeah. It's weird. You, th- you think about like you know, a city like Akron, Ohio and, and a tag team like the Wild Samoans, you know, it's that those are like the early shots. And it's 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 super interesting because because I think Georgia had been running Columbus, Ohio, since back in 1980. And I'm like, you think, why would Georgia want to run in Columbus, Ohio? And if I'm remembering the story correctly, I think it was Jim Barnett and Bill Watts were in the Georgia office and they they would do one of those things where they would ask fans to send in letters saying, what dream matches do you want to see on TV? And of course, what ma- matches the fans wrote on the envelopes in the back of the postcards didn't matter. What they wanted to see was the return address and the, and the postmark on those letters. Where are these letters coming from? And there were enough postcards and letters from Columbus, Ohio, people you know, burnt out on the, on the Sheik's promotion that they strategically started to you know to run there i think monthly or whatever and you know and and, and akron a little further northeast you know just an hour and a half hour 45 from pittsburgh you know and that that was the next the next stop that them and vince started doing and it's really it's really interesting that the cable when you talked a little bit about how you last week wor uh was removed from your cable station in 83 which is shocking to hear because People, you talk about cable and how TBS was seen everywhere, but I think as far back as, was it 79, WOR was also a quote-unquote superstation being distributed to some cable and uh, whatever, C-band satellite subscribers along with you know, TBS and WGN. 
So it wasn't like just people in New York, New Jersey, Connecticut seeing WWFD. It was, you know, people in Akron had access to it as well. Yeah, and I don't know the specifics, but you would think that Vince McMahon by this point is looking to expand his uh, syndicated program. But it's like you said, John, I mean, he, the WWF had been running Pittsburgh since the, the beginning of time. Akron's only about 90 minutes west. I mean, why not? But we'll talk more about that as this show goes on. I want to share a uh, a memory the WWF ran in Tingsboro, Massachusetts on February 25th, 1983. Tingsboro is literally, if, if you, I'm on one side of the building I live in. If I went to the other side and looked out the window, I would see Tingsboro. And my friends and I walked to this show. <laughs> so that, that was a first. Uh, the main event was Jimmy Snuka and the Strongbows versus Don Morocco and the Samoans. And we all walked in there saying, wow, Jimmy Snuka and Don Morocco, that's a dream match. And we hope they eventually do it. And oh, yeah, they eventually did it. Wow. Uh, but the, the, the main takeaway from this was number one, I saw Pete Sanchez and Johnny Rods get out of the car and I just went over and, you know, shook their hand. Hey guys, I'm a big fan. And it dawns on me and I did not have uh, enough of a filter to just say, Oh, don't say that. I'm like, Oh yeah. I saw you guys wrestle each other a couple of weeks ago, I think at the Boston garden and they just got right the hell away from me. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't even like, I just kind of put the two and two together really quick and said something dumb and it's like, okay, these guys are just fighting, but now they're getting out of the car together. And number two, I saw uh, Magnificent Morocco before the show. I've said this before on Stick to Wrestling. If you, if you, people, if the audience, if you guys think the wrestlers are big on TV, oh my God, Morocco was bigger than a refrigerator. I mean, Steve, have you ever had that where you're like, oh, my God, I can't believe how big this gentleman is. Yeah, yeah, I've seen that. In fact, um, I'll give a good example of that. Um, You know, I live in Tampa and one of the most famous local athletes here is Mike Allstott, who used to be a fullback for the uh, Buccaneers. Uh, all pro running back for the Buccaneers for a long time. And they, he won a cha- Super Bowl champion here and big guy. I mean, real, real big guy. But uh, years later, uh, I think I was at a lightning game. It might've been a playoff game. And, you know, he's, he was well remembered in the area for being a, such a star football player. So he's coming out on the ice at a lightning game with Hulk Hogan, the two of them together. And Hulk Hogan looked like, you know, this is like the dad and Mike Allstott was the son. I mean, it was just so much bigger. And, uh, you know, it just shows the wrestlers are just a, a lot better than even like a large, large regular athlete. Yeah. I mean, I, you know what? I've mentioned this on the show. I mean, you know, I grew up in an apartment complex where New England Patriots players lived. And I'm sitting there going, oh, my God, Morocco is a big guy. Like he was, you know, like I said, you're just like, oh, wow, this guy's superhuman. John, do you have any... uh any recollections like that? What always, you know, you know, these guys are big, they're wrestlers, they're going to be big, but it, it, it's, it, and especially, you know, the big ones, the ones they say are big, they're big. Like you, if you, I remember seeing big John Studd in public and you're like, he's big, he's big. His name is big John Studd. He's going <laughs> to be big. There's no surprise that he is indeed big, but there are other guys. Um, the one that comes, I remember seeing him years later, not when he was wrestling at a, a, a convention or something was WrestleCon things. Uh, Ted DiBiase is not a guy you think of as a a big guy. I just remember being struck by even, you know, 
middle-aged Ted DiBiase, how big Ted DiBiase was, who you didn't think of him as a big guy at all, but what a gigantic man he was. And it's that was the one that stood out to me. I'll give you guys one more example of that. Um, I went to this wrestle reunion here in Tampa, and, and it, that event, and I think it was like 2005. You know, pretty much anybody who in wrestling was there. And I saw Bob Orton, who happened to be an extremely friendly, nice guy. He is staying there next to this huge wrestler who I just couldn't identify. But this wrestler is right about Orton's size, maybe a little taller. I couldn't recognize him. It turned out it was uh, Missing Link, Dewey Robertson. But he was huge, a huge man. I believe it. I mean, you know, you, you, you hear things about Stan Lane, for example. Well, Stan, he's a little bit small. Look, you could go, you could spend the day working at the mall. And if Stan Lane walked by, you're like, okay, that's the, the, the biggest guy I've seen all day. I mean, he is a huge guy and he's considered small for pro wrestling. But anyway, a big development in the World Wrestling Federation happens on March 6th and March 7th of 1983. And I'm talking, this is a huge development. The World Wrestling Federation debuts in San Diego on the 6th and in Los Angeles on the 7th. And to me, this is, I mean, Titanic, pardon the pun, but now the World Wrestling Federation is flying their wrestlers. They're not moving over one town. Oh, you know, we're in Pittsburgh. We might as well go an hour and a half west to Akron. Now they are debuting literally across the country, two cities that sit on the Pacific Ocean, San Diego and Los Angeles. Uh, John, if I am another promoter, if I'm Jim Crockett, Bill Watts, Eddie Graham, whoever, I look at that and I say, okay, I, I think I at least need to have a talk with Vince Sr. And he needs to make me feel better about, you know, okay, if we're flying from New York to Los Angeles, <laughs> why not stop in Chicago and have a show? Yeah. And it's, and it's, and it's funny because uh, Mike LaBelle, I think, yeah, Mike LaBelle and, and Vince Sr. always had a good symbiotic relationship and you know wrestling from the olympic was on in new york you know i think they even had an actual business entity between their promotions the the atlantic and pacific wrestling corporation i think it was called in the late 70s but you know by this this time 82 vince is at the helm labelle's promotion is not doing great and i think vince ends up buying the rights for the labelle's territory or somewhere in the neighborhood of five hundred thousand dollars and for another $500,000 $500,000 bought the rights to the Atlantic Pacific Wrestling Corporation, which included the LaBelle McMahon Sr. TV setup. I think McMahon wanted to go even a step further because LaBelle, you know, the, the LA never had a consistent English speaking station for his show. So McMahon comes in and offers one of the LA stations, it was a KHG, I want to say, $2,500 a week to broadcast the show, something like $130,000 a year. So he ends up spending more expanding into Los Angeles than he spent actually buying the promotion from his father, which is another one of the reasons why this is such an, an important uh, part of this, this story, you know? Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I mean, Steve, you know, the Steve, you can make the argument or from Vince McMahon Jr., I'm like, hey, you know, I've bought out this promotion. Uh, basically, there's no wrestling in this territory. You guys have nothing to worry about. I'm not going to come invade where, where you're already promoting. Well, 
Vince did a great thing for his company, and uh, you know he he took the formula that worked for his dad and expanded it nationwide over time. This is the beginning of what we're talking about here. But uh, from from the standpoint of of us fans, as as you know, whether you're a hardcore fan or even a more of a casual fan, I think uh, I think one thing that we we kind of forget sometimes. We use Don Morocco as an example. I mean, Don Morocco here in '83 is still at his peak. You know, still, still very, very effective in everything he's doing, the wrestling, the interviews, the work rate. But now you're adding this schedule, this crazy schedule to the mix, and pretty soon, uh, as the years would he would would roll out, uh, these guys are just. You know, gone are the old uh, days of the 200-mile car ride where the guys could talk over their matches and their work rate and what have you. And, hey, would you try this move or did you know how to do this? And now the guys are on jets flying cross-country back and forth to Toronto to Tampa and vice versa. And they really lost something with all those changes. You know, gone were the car rides where they could talk about how to work better. Uh, Gone were the few hours of extra sleep they could get. Uh, and I think that the guys just eventually got all so burned out that unless you were like a Bret Hart who was, you know, obsessed with with his performance or Randy Savage, you know, a lot of these guys just got so burned out. They their their work got bad, and the hectic the, tra- the the travel was so hectic it really killed their their work rate. It was just it wasn't like they wanted to work bad. It's just that they had nothing left to give to their bodies anymore. You know, forgive me, everyone listening, if, if you've heard this story from me before. I mean, Kamala, the Ugandan headhunter, once told me that as far as his, his, as far as he was concerned, his job was to get to the arena and get out of there in one piece. He did not care about anything else. And that was kind of the mindset. It's like, you know, we have to wrestle, you know, 350 times a year, sometimes twice on weekends. And it's our job just to get out there and show up and and not take any chances as far as you know possibly getting injured and either you know losing money or having to travel around on crutches all right and, and the next development we have the strongbows finally lose the tag team titles to the samoans i mean i don't mean to harp on this i know we've talked about this before john to me, it felt like the, when the Strongbows finally lost the championship, it's like that old pet that you have that you finally just have to bring to the bed. <laughs> it was that bad. I remember the TV match too, and I remember, and it was that it was that same vibe on TV. I remember Jules being very heartbroken after the match, and and and, and Jay Strongbow going over, sort of consoling him, right? And it was very, it was very sad and somber for the Strongbow Brothers and Jules to be gone right after this too. I think, where do you go, Portland after this maybe? I don't even know exactly where he went right after. I know he was in world-class championship wrestling yeah. war, and I was just like, oh, why, why are they bringing him in? But it, it's, 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 it's interesting, like the, the Samoans, we mentioned this a little bit earlier, like them sort of defecting back to the WWF here without, without notice is another one of those sort of like first shots in, in the wrestling war. So it's like one of those little, you know, not a huge thing. Like it's not like they're poaching Hulk Hogan quite yet, but it's one of these little things that wouldn't have happened. You wouldn't have seen happen maybe two years ago that you see happening now. So that's sort of the weird subtext behind this, this title change. I thought, you know, 
Yeah, I agree. I mean, the Samoans, you know, I've always said the Samoans leaving Georgia without notice was really the first shot because back in the day, the promoter would call up one promoter would call the other up and say, hey, you know, can you finish these guys? He's starting with me in six weeks. And, you know, Vince did not give Ole that notice. And it felt like looking back, it felt like he was definitely uh, almost poking Ole with a stick. Like, oh, you want to treat me like a, you know, the promoter's kid? Well, here you go, Ole. Any thoughts on that? Mm. Yeah, it just, it just, there was never, um, I mean, I was going to say there was never any cooperation or any like uh, desire that these guys would kind of peacefully coexist. Uh, I mean, there was a point, I guess, when um, Vince became the majority shareholder of the company that he did offer Ole a lifetime job to stay. And we know what the answer to that was. But, uh, you know, at this point, it's just such a, you know, a a fight and two companies trying to struggle to gain position over the other. And, you know, at at this point, you really don't know who's going to win. But maybe if you know enough, you know who's going to win. Yeah, I mean, if you've if you've watched WWF wrestling, you know, at all, I mean, you knew exactly the, the, the tag team situation was so predictable. And yet I say that and this title change was the last really predictable one. They they kind of got out of that pattern out in 1983. And we'll talk about that uh, fall of 1983 when that comes around. All right. The World Wrestling Federation returns to Madison Square Garden March 20th, 1983. And we have some audio of that. Once again, any audio you hear here on Stick to Wrestling is for review purposes only. All right, let's hear from superstar Billy Graham at Madison Square Garden, March 20th, 1983. Let's go back to a uh, post-match interview with uh, Mel Phillips and uh, superstar Billy Graham. I'm standing here with superstar Billy Graham along with his manager, the Grand Wizard of Wrestling. And Billy, the question that stands out in my mind is that it looks as though you might have been defeated by Strongbow in that match had it not been for that controversial chop that you used. What match were you watching, Bill Phillips? The man is not even sweating. This was a warm-up. This was like taking candy from a baby. Do they realize the power of being a martial arts champion? Do they realize the power of being a martial arts champion? I'm saying right now, right here, live on television, Superstar Billy Graham wants better competition, wants stronger competition. Somebody that when I give him the superstar chop, the people will fall out their seats will fall out of their seats. Drop dead. You want to see the superstar back here? We want better competition. Ladies and gentlemen, well, let's return. Superstar Billy Graham asking for more competition. Okay, it was a post-match interview. My apologies. Let's talk about a little bit about the March 20th show. Uh, Macrovira pins Baron Mikel Cicluna in the opener. That is an upset. Swede Hansen is still a heel. He pins Pete Sanchez. Tony Gurria defeats Johnny Rods. Then we have superstar Billy Graham. Uh, pinning Jules Strongbow, and that was the post-match interview with uh, with Mel Phillips. And Steve, I have to kind of think, and this is just me theorizing out out there that after Cal Rudman's performance the the previous month, he may have been asked to stay home. <laughs> uh, 
and which is funny considering what the WWF would eventually turn into. Yeah, I, I guess they were trying to maybe give uh, the uh, very popular independent contractor Mel Phillips uh, an audition here. But uh, yeah, maybe this is the time that they, they realized, uh, and I think it was Sergeant Slaughter who suggested to Vince that Lord Alfred Hayes was available and to bring him in as a uh, color guy. And he became um, that kind of backstage interviewer and did that well before he kind of transitioned to becoming the uh, house show announcer along with Monsoon and some of the other guys they used. Yeah, I just can't help but think that, you know, Vince McMahon put his foot down and sent Cal Rudman home and, and kicked him out in favor of, of Mel Phillips. I, I, mean, I like the way you use that, put his foot down for Mel Phillips. That's very interesting. <laughs> Pure coincidence, I assure <laughs> oh, you. <thank> God. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, John, any any thoughts on, I mean, well, that, that interview we just had? I'm not. This is the our first mention of the Grand Wizard on this episode. Yeah, really. Which I, I don't know if, 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 if where where he's been. Uh, I, I he was a, one of my favorite managers when I was younger. I love I love I love the Wizard, uh, and it was great to see him. And I like I love how <laughs> at, the, at this point in in his career and his promos, he seems like he is using every ounce of energy in his body to yell. <laughs> it's, it's, it I mean, like it's seeping every every last bit of energy he has during these promos and it's great he was managing superstar billy graham he was who was kind of on his way not really on his way out but i mean had peaked uh was managing playboy buddy rose who was on his way out and summer 83 who steve was was grand wizard who would who would he manage next do you remember sergeant slaughter Sergeant Slaughter and then Mass Superstar after that. Thank you. Kind of, uh, my brain went out for a second, but I, I think it's kind of back. But anyway, <laughs> Salvatore Volomo fi fights Ray Stevens to a double countout, kind of a nice non-loss for Salvatore Volomo. And then we have Bob Backlund finally getting out of his feud with Don Morocco after beating him in a Texas death match. Uh, I'll start with you, John. I don't know if either of you have seen this match. In my opinion, it's not very good. Uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's not one of my favorites, uh, Morocco back on matches. I believe this is on the, uh, the old, the old Peacock there. If anybody wants to fire it up and, and prove us wrong. Again, I'm not, again, the growing up, this was the only version of the Texas death match that I, that I knew. So I, I don't want to comment too much on that aspect of it, but it's not, yeah, again, not a very, for, for a, a blow off match. It's not, not, not what I had hoped, you know? You know, I'm going to go way, way off the reservation here. Bob Backlund, you know, sometimes he's in the middle of this blood feud and he's got a match where he could do anything he wants. And it, it's a scientific match. And it, he's he did it more than once. He did it in this match. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it just you, you want to have some fire. You want to have some. OK, we just had two wrestling matches. We had a brawl backstage. You know, Backlund is going to use the ta you know, rough tactics on this guy. You know who was like the worst at that, in my opinion? Ricky Steamboat. Mm -hmm. Like, Randy Savage tries to kill him with a ring bell. Jake Roberts DDTs him outside the ring and knocks him out. 
Morocco hits him in the back with a chair and, and steamboat. It never felt like he really had that, that fire. It was like, you know, okay, you're supposed to be really mad at this guy and you want to kill him for the thing that he did. And he, that, that's the one bad thing I have to say about Ricky steamboat. He just never had that, that fire in the matches that involved a feud. And I think, he was worse than Backlund, but Backlund was bad, Steve. I'm, I'm a big Steamboat fan, but Steamboat just did not have a like something really threatening, or he didn't have like a move like a DDT or any kind of a move to really scare the heels. I mean, his big finisher was the big cross body, you know, drop off the top rope, uh, flying body press, what have you. Uh, I mean, he was great. I mean, one of the all-time great baby faces, but just didn't have that scary weapon in his arsenal. At least Backlund had the uh, cross-face chicken wing, which was uh, pr- a pretty imposing finisher. And it's funny because Backlund did could have that fire on occasion. Like he had the the, the Texas death match with the, the Patera from a couple of years earlier, and you, you see it there. And there were uh, numerous times where Backlund, on um, uh, the second or the third match at MSG, comes out angry and comes right out of the gate, just like pounding on the guy. He, he had that in him and it, it, it did, it did come to the surface occasionally just didn't come to the surface tonight for whatever reason. No. And he, you know, he, like I said, he'd done it before. I mean, there's a Texas death match out there with he and Bobby Duncan that, you know, just doesn't go anywhere. And like mm-hmm. I said, you, you like Ricky Steamboat, you know, I, I think the fans, they want the baby face to have that, that Bruno thing. Like I've had enough of you. I'm going to kill you now. <laughs> you know, you can't have it all of the time, but you got to have it some of the time. And I think, you know, it was lack, could be lacking with Backland and was almost always lacking with Steamboat. Yeah, I mean, Bruno was a great brawler, and guys like uh, Hogan and Orndorff were good at what they did. Uh, just, I think Backlund realized that wasn't his strong suit that wrestling was, and I think that's why he kept going back to that, you know, giving guys suplexes instead of uh, punching the mouth. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know what? That makes sense. I mean, maybe that is what happened. You know, Ric Flair would talk about how he never threw a drop kick because he didn't feel like his drop kick was was good enough. But anyway, let's hear from Don Morocco before his match against Bob Backlund at Madison Square Garden. Uh, once again, these are for review and educational purposes only. Wrestling fans, let's go now to a pre-recorded interview with Vince McMahon and the magnificent one, the magnificent Morocco. With us now, the magnificent Morocco, no doubt, the individual has given Bob Backlund more problems than any one pro wrestler to ever meet. The champion here in Madison Square Garden, but this could very well be in the no-holes-barred type of event. More your type of a match. Champion versus champion. This time, see, Bob Backlund can't cry. He can't get mad. He can't slap the referee. He can't do nothing silly. All it is now, all it is now is right down the guts, right down the heart. Who, how long, how much pain, and we're going to do it. Because Backlund can do it. I've been with him for hours. But he's been with me for hours. I think right now he might be a little bit nervous. Seemed to have lost his cool after the last event here in Madison Square Garden. Well, you see, it's not often a world champion is beaten by another champion. It's not often Bad Backlund's beaten. It's not often that he gets the cross-face chicken wing on somebody and he don't hear him yell and scream and beg for mercy, you see. But me, I never give up. 
<laughs> Thank you for joining us, the Magnificent Morocco. All right. Well, we did learn that Don Morocco, Magnificent Morocco, did not win the championship uh, from Bob Backlund. And, well, unfortunately, he never would. The rest of the Madison Square Garden show was Andre the Giant, Rocky Johnson, and Jimmy Snuka beating John Studd. Afa and Captain Lou Albano, Sika had to be substituted for. Uh, once again, we're seeing a lot of Snuka and Andre against the Samoans. And finally, last match, SD Jones, not the last match, SD Jones pins Jose Estrada. And then the finisher is a midgets match. I'd be very interested to see how many people, how many of the 26,109 people stuck around for that one. But anyway, let's go right to the one of the biggest feuds the WWF had in 1983. Uh, it was a feud that I wanted to see. Uh, it was Don Morocco now defending the Intercontinental Championship against Rocky Johnson. Let's hear the Buddy Rogers corner, or a couple of them, that set this up once again for review purposes only. Heavyweight champion Don Morocco. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I said some time back that there were three men that I thought were really superb in the wrestling world today, that was Jimmy Snooker, Bob Backlund, and Don Morocco. I will have to say one thing, whether you like this gentleman or whether you don't, whatever he tells you, it will come true. You know, last Saturday night in Madison Square Garden, Buddy Rogers was the proudest moment in my professional wrestling career. Because for the first time, Two men openly admitted that they hated one another. For the first time, two men openly admitted that they were going to get down. But for the first time, Pedro Morales and myself proved that hatred is real and you're not afraid to say it. Now, you've seen how many times I've been knocked down. You've seen how many times I was kicked. You've seen how many times I was punched. And you see the results because persistence and persistence no matter where you go and well, when i turn it on i turn what's well, not well nothing We're well, not finished let me I'm say talking. one thing there's one thing i will admit you have and that's humility that's with that ladies and gentlemen time. let's go back to ringside okay guys rogers said something that i really liked during that segment he he i, I want to get both of your reactions to this Buddy Rogers says that, okay, the three best wrestlers in the world are Bob Backlund, Jimmy Snuka, and Magnificent Morocco. To me, that gets both Snuka and Morocco over like crazy because Buddy Rogers kept it to just three names, the world champion, the intercontinental champion, and Jimmy Snuka. Uh, John, your thoughts on that? Agreed. Rogers does a lot of... I hate to be disrespectful to great buddy Roger, but there's a lot of, a lot of nothing happening with him in these interviews. Oh yes. As much as, as much as he's trying, they're trying to, to move these things forward and he's not the best at it, but right here, he's really good at it. And like we may have mentioned, uh, I don't know if it was this week or last week, you know, like you have Snuka and Backland or, you know, as far as like baby faces, either one or one a, you know, and Morocco is your top heel. And, Rocky Johnson, who we're mentioning here, is probably either the number two or three babyface in the company this time. So this is in a, this little short segment. This is what these Rogers Corners are ideally supposed to be. Like Buddy 
buddy's gravitas getting over who's there or a new challenger. And that's, he did a great job here. I agree. And he was, he was very specific. You know, those were my top three wrestlers in the world. I mean, Steve, what do you think? Yeah, it was a good endorsement by Buddy Rogers, uh, letting the fans know that these are the top three and, uh, no one else really is, isn't in their, uh, atmosphere of uh, stardom. Yeah, he, it felt like he really separated those three guys from the pack. I remember, you know, hearing that 40 years ago and it having an effect on me. If he had named five or six guys, it wouldn't have worked. But, you know, these are the three elite talents in the World Wrestling Federation. All right. Now, for real, we'll hear the Rogers Corner uh, segment that got Johnson and Morocco started once again for review purposes only. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. This week, my guest is none other than a very, very popular and a superb wrestler, Rocky Johnson. I would like to say one thing, and that is, if ever a man was looked upon as an uncrowned heavyweight champion, believe me, I believe Rocky is, and anyone listening in, I think will go along with me. Rocky, I know... You must have something on your mind in regards to your status in the wrestling world today. That's right, buddy. I sure do. I just want to say this, you know, since I've been here to some of the toughest competition in the world right here, it's just that I feel I don't understand why that I can't seem to get a title match. Now, I've been very fortunate and defeated everybody I've been put against, and I feel that I should be in line for a title match, whether it be with Bob Backman, which I respect as a great champion, whether it be with Don Morocco. Listen, if I have to, I'll go get a partner and uh, go after the World's Tag Team Championships. I just feel, can, you know what I'm saying? I just feel that I sh- should have and deserve a title match, buddy. Well, I'll tell you, I will do everything within my power to try to get a shot at one of the titles for you, and I guarantee you, I haven't failed Rocky so far, and I will do a job for you, Rock. With that, ladies and gentlemen, we'll go back to ringside wrestling. Ah, Buddy Rogers is going to use a little bit of his influence to get Rocky Johnson a title shot. Now let's move to the next week's Rogers Corner segment with the Magnificent Morocco. And once again, for review purposes only, here is Don Morocco and Buddy Rogers Corner. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. This week, my guest is the Intercontinental Heavyweight Champion, Don Morocco. As I told you people that I would try to get Don out here on my uh, corner to see what I could do about maybe getting a match with Rocky Johnson. I will say one thing, Don, you did promise you'd be here and you are here and I appreciate that. But there's one thing I do want to come around to and that is, when do you think Rocky Johnson could get a match with you. First of all, who appointed you matchmaker in the first place? That's right. Rocky Nobody pointed me a matchmaker. That microphone. That's right. Rocky Johnson has yet to prove himself in the WWF. I beat a heck of a man at Pedro Morales. 
and I prove myself against all the finest competition up and down the world. I am the finest wrestler to set shore on the East Coast, West Coast, United States, or the world. You talk about wrestlers, Rocky Johnson isn't fit to, to carry my luggage to the airport. Rocky Johnson hasn't worked his way up. Rocky Johnson don't know the first thing about wrestling. Rocky Johnson don't have the moves I do. He doesn't have the friends I do. All right, listen, you've been shadow boxing. You've been doing a lot of things. Why don't you come right to the point? Why don't you? All right, let me ask you something. Let me say this, Morocco. You won the belt in front of 22,000 people at Madison Square Gardens. That's right. Well, then why don't you give me a chance to win it right here on TV in front of 22 million people? Well, come on now, Don. Let's get it up or shut up. Are you the champ? Are you this great Don Morocco? Can he get a match? Let's hear it. Anytime you want, I'll be here next week. Shut up! Ladies and gentlemen, hear this. I can tell these people that this match is made. All right, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. You have that match right here next week. With that, we'll go back to ringside wrestling. See how easy Buddy Rogers can create a title match? Guys, the Intercontinental Champion, we talked about this. It had only been around for about four years, even less than that. As, as far as I can remember, there were only like, there was only one real program for that title before this. It was, uh, Greg Valentine challenging Pedro Morales in early 1982 when, uh, they did an angle where Greg Valentine suplexed Pedro Morales outside the ring and they wound up having a, a, a taped fist match at, at Madison Square Garden. But this is only the second time we've actually had like a real program. Like, wow, Don Morocco is defending this title with a storyline behind it against Rocky Johnson. I mean, uh, John, share your thoughts with us. Yeah. And, and, and for me, that was the whole creating a, a secondary title like this. That's the whole point of that's the whole point of the secondary title is to have, you know, if you have your, your baby face champion now you could have a heel champion you have someone something for your other baby faces to do that's the whole point of having the secondary title why not put this on tv especially two guys like morocco and rocky johnson who are two of the more talented guys in the company at the time it'd be a shame not to put these guys together you know in some form especially on tv like they're going to do here and this uh this match was interesting (laughs) <laughs> the, uh, the the TV match that they have here, but we can get to that in a minute. But yeah, I mean, you know, the, the Intercontinental Championship. You know, by this point, I mean it. It really got Pat Patterson over to a new level. It got Patera over to a new level. Morocco, maybe more than anyone, just put him on a different plane. And yeah, Pedro Morales. You know, okay, he's a much bigger deal than the Ivan Putskis and the Tony Atlases who don't have the title yet now. I mean, Steve, this is the first time or the second time they're really focusing a feud around the championship. Yeah, these are two guys from the West Coast. Uh, They'd had uh, big runs for Roy Shire's promotion. Rocky Johnson is looking back on it now. He's probably one of the guys that they, they could have used better and more efficiently and gotten more mileage out of. 
to me, he was a great singles competitor, and the fans were really into him, uh, maybe not at snooker level, but maybe the next level down. And I think he was really popular. And, yeah, I'm glad he got the run with Atlas after this, but uh, I almost wish he had stayed around longer as a singles competitor. I can see that. I mean, Rocky Johnson, he was a charismatic guy. He got over right away. He was a fresh face in the World Wrestling Federation. Now, I'm guessing both of you guys have seen this match. Steve, let's start with you. What They had the, the match on TV the next week. What were your thoughts on the match itself? It was an excellent match. Uh, yeah, Morocco was just, I mean, he was just so over at the time. Anybody he would work with would get the rub from him. It definitely showed the fire that Rocky Johnson had, which was really – he had that real good uh, – kind of the opposite of Backlund, really good uh, baby face heat as far as just, you know, really good with his comebacks and uh, really good brawler in the ring and uh, great drop kicks as well. Um, these two are really a good, good match for each other. I, I agree. And, you know, coming in, I mean, I kind of knew that, okay, we're going to get a Don Morocco or Magnificent Morocco versus Rocky Johnson feud out of this. Uh, John, I thought it was a really good match. I wasn't crazy about the finish. What did you think? Yeah. Okay. Again, um, to look at it through uh, 1983 eyes, uh, you know, at this point, this is probably one of the most matches I was looking for forward to the most on, on TV that I had ever seen at this point on WWF TV, at least like I was super excited about this. And when it was over, it's sort of, you're sort of left with the feeling that Rocky Johnson is the new intercontinental champion. <laughs> Cause they have like the weird, the finish. I think Rocky has him in the abdominal stretch, right? Yes. Albano gets on the apron or in the ring bell rings. And that's sort of and Patterson and, uh, Vince, so sort of their their commentary sort of lead you to believe that Rocky is the new new champion, which he which he is not, which which bummed me out a lot uh, at the time. One thing I, I did not like about the booking here is, I mean, when was the last time someone submitted on television to the abdominal stretch? It just was a a move from a a time gone by. And I def if it were me, I would have used like a Boston Crab or something. Um, but yeah, you were definitely left with the idea that, you know, has the title changed? You know, Albano got in the ring, but he didn't make contact with Rocky Johnson. Yeah. And then the bell rings and, you know, I kind of knew the finish. Like, okay, it's a, a cheap DQ, but, you know, well, let's see, let's hear what Rocky Johnson had to say after this match. Ladies and gentlemen. It gives me an extreme pleasure to introduce my next guest, who I rightfully believe that should be called the Intercontinental Heavyweight Champion, and rightfully so, believe me, Rocky, my friend and your friend, Rocky Johnson. Well, thank you, buddy. I just want to say this. I don't want to cry over spilt milk. I appreciate you getting a match for me and everything, but I'll tell you one thing. I feel I should be the champion setting out here because when I wrestle Morocco, I definitely heard him say, I give up. Everybody sitting around that ringside or heard him screaming, I give up, I give up. I feel I should be the champion. I'm not crying over spilled milk, daddy. That's in the past. I proved to everybody out there that I could beat Don Morocco. But all I want now, buddy, is just one 
more chance. Well, Rocky, I believe that there isn't a promoter in this world that wouldn't want that match, and I know you got it in you. Thank you, buddy. I don't care where it's at, whether it's at TV, whether it's at Madison Square Garden, or whether it's some some small town. I know, and you hear me, and I'm not bragging. It's just that I have a lot of confidence in myself. I know that the man can be beat because I proved it right on TV when I beat Don Morocco and everybody around, especially in that ringside net, heard him say, I quit. Well, with that, ladies and gentlemen, we'll go back to ringside wrestling. Okay, kind of a nice wrinkle to the story that Rocky Johnson claims that Morocco had actually submitted, but then the referee uh, went and disqualified uh, Morocco for Albano's interference. Rocky Johnson and Don Morocco then went around the horn defending the, uh, with Morocco defending the Intercontinental Championship. And we'll talk about that the next time we run down the WWF in the spring of 1983. And we'll do that. Eh, probably about eight or nine weeks. Um, John Boucher, I want to thank you. You have been so generous with your time. I'll, I'll let everyone know that John uh, has been here doing this now for three hours and 15 minutes. John, thank you so much for two excellent episodes of Sick to Wrestling. Thank you guys for having me. I would love to do it again sometime. Steve, awesome. uh, thank you as well for all the great work you do. Thank you to Lou, too, for his uh, great contributions. Oh, for sure. I mean, you know, I'm glad I had both Steve and John on doing this because, you know, it's something that all three of us grew up watching and watching very carefully. And, you know, we were all going to the arenas and having fun with it. I want to thank everyone for listening. Um, I, we will be back next week with another episode. I want to thank Brian Last and Arcadian Vanguard for giving me this podium. I want to thank everyone for listening. And, of course, I want to thank Lou Kippelman for all the great work he does producing this show, especially when we have audio like we did the last two weeks. So thank you, Lou. This has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. We'll see you next week. This concludes our podcast day.